Welcome to Screen Talk and New Wires Weekly Podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by our Editor-at-Large, Ann Thompson. And Ann, we are starting the conversation this week with some actual Oscar news, or at least Academy news, because the Academy, as it does every year, announced a bunch of people it was letting in. We knew they'd be leaning into diversity. We didn't know the insane volume of people the floodgates would be truly opening this year. What do you make of the the, the huge volume of new? It's academies? really it is remarkable. I mean, if you go back to twenty fifteen, they were you know the usual level of people was like three hundred and something across all the branches, and then it went up after um, Oscar So White in two thousand sixteen. It went up to like six hundred and something, and then last year it was seven hundred and something, and this year it was nine twenty eight. Which is, I mean, just for those of us who are trying to look through all the names, it's, it's an enormously long list. And it brings, if they all accept, which they don't always do, Ryan Coogler is a notable example of someone who decided not to join. Um, ironically, though, I mean, Black Panther could do very well this year um, with the new membership. And that's the question is whether, you know, if you get up to about 8,200 um people and a certain percentage of them are international and and people of color and women and and uh you know all of these changes adding up over these past three years it may make a difference now it's very interesting to think about it because a lot of times with with these announcements i mean people are caught off guard by them and uh it's bringing people into the conversation who you don't automatically associate with the kind of process of award season campaigning and to see some of these names on there whether it's you know Sean Baker, Chloe Zhao or Justin Simeon I think what's interesting about those people is that they're fairly newcomers to the scene but in some ways kind of epitomize the direction it's going and the likelihood that this means a broader range of films not just in terms of the diversity side of things but in terms of Smaller films, independently produced films, really are kind of the standard now. In terms well, of don't get season. don't get ahead of yourself, Eric. I want to. That's what I want I mean, to see happen. People, no, a lot of people want to say, "Oh, this is you know, this is going to mean it's going to go totally indie and and or foreign or you know." Now you could get. I mean, you could before you could get a more. You could get Michael Haneke's Amour, which was a huge uh, success, um, uh, but it had to be. It had to be a success in America. It had to be seen by all those voters. It had to, you know, even if it's, a, it's going to be interesting because there's a, they're, they're sending things out through a mailing house or through a bunch of mailing houses now so that the dif- different publicists, like Peggy Siegel's list is less, you know, important than it used to be. Um, it has to go out. So the DVDs are going to go out to these people all over the world, but that doesn't mean they're going to watch them. And it doesn't mean um, that something arcane and small is still going to have a chance um, with that bigger group. But But uh, even if you were to say that maybe 20% of the Academy, which is what I, I did a sort of rough estimate based on all the numbers and names I have uh, of, of the, of the Academy membership is now international which is pretty significant. Um, but if you look at those numbers, it's still like, you know, you'd have 
maybe 1,700 people who are, who are from all around the world, and you would still have 700 and something people who are uh, basically uh, domestic. Well, look, I'm so not, I'm not you saying... you still have to reach all those people. Yeah. You st- it isn't going to make... You know, remember, Darkest Hour still got six nominations. I mean, year. I'm not saying that the old rules are, are completely gone. We say this about politics, too. It's like just because things are changing doesn't mean that there aren't some old tricks that still kind of run the game. And it's not like studios been completely run out of town if the voting happened well, the right now. the studios aren't making that many movies. But if the, but if the voting happened right now, you know that Black, Black, Black Panther... Black Panther does have a chance. Yeah, That's if, exciting, if, you know. If voting happened right now, Black Panther would, would be... The front runner, we know that, but we also are way early and haven't seen all these movies happening in the fall. What I think is kind of interesting is, yes, it's true that for a long period of time, movies like Amor, if they are commercially successful, have that possibility of crossing over and you can campaign for that. What I think is kind of compelling to me is this notion that maybe not this year, but sometime in the near future, we may see with this new membership that sensibility kind of bleeding out further beyond that to the, to explore a broader range of films. I also think it's kind of funny to see the foreign directors who are being brought in. You know, people like Lee Chang Dong or odd ones like Bellatar. Oh, that movie been, just got picked up. Did you see that? His film Burning Out of Can just got picked up. But Bellatar yeah. has been retired for years. I know. I think that's so, hilarious. So that's like an example here and it's of like, somebody who's not even active anymore. But I, he's well-deserving. He should be cool in there. It's cool to see that name there. I'm just thinking, you know, look... What if 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 Bellatar? There's a bigger Asia block, by the way. Yeah, a much bigger but, Asia but block, a bigger Spanish-speaking block. Uh, for appropriately example. so. I mean, there's Spanish language cinema is, is really important on the international stage now. But I think there's also something to be said for uh, just how much this kind of the, these kind of international sensibilities could pervade the academy, even if it is, even if they are still in the minority because it's more likely to be on the craft side because that's where they are most of them or on the brainy director writer editor side yeah it's great it's 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 all it will have no i'm i'm saying it's going to have an impact but it's not going to be as i would say this that there's it's more likely to have an impact on a wider range of genres being acceptable so that it isn't just period dramas like Darkest Hour, it's also perhaps hereditary or first reformed or or something you know a little more edgy that that would be um, more acceptable to them now. Yeah, and and that that kind of thing like Shape actually, of Water was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that kind of thing is really fascinating too because it it sort of I mean these films were not produced in Hollywood, but they are successful. They're not successful in like a Black Panther sort of way. But they're they're successful in a, in a limited release sort of way that seems to be kind of. It where needs to be some. I mean, won't you be my neighbor is another example of something that's just reaching a certain kind of critical mass that will make it pretty hard to to ignore. Right. So there's there's still this need for some kind of a commercial sustainability to drive the the campaign itself. I also think it's interesting to think about how. Uh, foreign language films might be supported in other categories. I mean, the idea of say, well, it was true of a more getting a cinematography nomination, something like that. 
Well, that's happened before with right. with his. Um, what was the name of his Ida. other film, the black and white one? With Ida. Yeah. No, that's that's obviously uh, Polish. The Polish filmmaker who's Cold War is coming. Yeah, out yeah, I was saying Cold War is what's the name of the contender, uh, Michael Haneke? With black Haneke's and white film movie. was um, White Ribbon. So that's that right. got a that cinematography, got a cinematography nomination. Right. nomination. Yeah, no, I, but, but, you know, Guillermo del Toro has been in there before too with Pan's Labyrinth. That happens. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it could have, for example, suppose Cold War did do register really well and, and do well. Maybe it would give the young, uh, I think her name is Joanna Kruger, the young uh, star of the movie. Yeah, the best she could, actress. She could be, uh, you know, someone who would have a better, better chance um, than she might have before. I mean, just for the sake of argument. Right, as, as it should be if indeed that is one of the best performances of the year. I mean, it's certainly very strong. And if people are seeing it any way to consider the film for one category, why not others? The other thing to think about in that respect is are there opportunities for foreign language films that aren't the ones their countries submit. Um, yeah, but again, it. it would have to be, this is the argument I'm making, it would have to be a much more popular movie. You know, it would it would have to still, even Ida, if you, to use that as an example, like that was actually very Amour successful, yeah. was a very successful movie. It played, and a movie like um, Tony Erdmann, which, you know, one did a lot of, got a lot of awards from the European Film Awards and was very successful in Europe. It didn't register here. It got it got put in by the foreign branch, but it wasn't a big, uh, it wasn't a big, uh, it didn't win foreign language. It no, and it wasn't a movie chance. for everyone, to be fair. No. So that was, I mean, it was a hard sell. Even if it's going to have a remake, which I actually, some I people get I get so annoyed. It is you know, annoying. That this could be, her name is Joanna Kulig, K-U-L-I-G. I knew I didn't have it right. Kulig. I will memorize this name, I swear You'll to God. You'll be sick of it in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to the to the next, one of the new movies coming up this week, which um, is an interesting case of a filmmaker who got a lot of attention for her last movie, which was eight years ago, her last feature film, uh, Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace. Um, and I, uh, this played uh, Sundance, and it played Cannes, and um, well-deserved uh, uh, reviews, very, very, very well-reviewed. Uh, and, and yet I worry um, that despite Bleecker's best efforts, um, and, a, and Ben Foster, who did well in Hell or High Water um, in the movie, yeah, I worry that it's a serious uncompromising look uh, at uh, survivalists in the wild who uh, run against culture. I suppose uh, so. I wouldn't say... Back in. I wonder if, how dramatically uh, commercial it will be. It's an, it's, I, I think it, in some ways, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily, it, it, it's going to get there in the way that Winner's Bone did, but it does seem to me like a less dreary film than Winter's Bone. I mean, Winter's Bone was essentially a detective story, but it was also a movie that, you know, took place against this really bleak backdrop. Hard scrabble. Yeah. yeah. And it just, and, and this one, I think, is actually more about kind of the quest for a utopian existence outside of modern society. And in that sense, it's kind of more hopeful in a way, and, and it's, it's gentler. 
It's, it's a father-daughter drama, yeah. and it's very moving and very emotional. Whereas in Winter's she Bone, discovers the father a was new missing. actress, Thomason, um, is is this 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 girl is super super good, Mackenzie, yeah, um, Mackenzie, who was also uh, she discovered Jennifer Lawrence with Mitchell exactly. Winters. I think oh. the the films do speak to each other in a way. I wouldn't put this. It, unfortunately, because it's been so long since Winter's Bone, it's it's it doesn't. I think benefit from the comparison because it is a it is a smaller film in certain ways. It's not quite as to me. It wasn't quite as audacious as Winter's Bone. I think Winter's Bone is is will it sort of depicts a society in in a more unvarnished way, and this one is trying to to kind of bring you along on a journey that's a, a little bit more conventional in terms of its formula, but it's still very well acted, and there's a lot of intrigue and and. Um, you know, interesting questions that it asks about family and, and, and lifestyle choices and things like that. But I think what they share, and I think this is what Granick brings to it, is um, an incredible uh, verisimilitude. I mean, they, they, she goes really far uh, with the details and the research and the kind of neorealist ethic you know that she's trying to get across she she's really trying to get you to be part of the real world at the same time that she's crafting a drama and i i give her a lot of credit for that she's a good director a really good director the well, action should make terrific. movies more often i mean that's sort of the, the takeaway well that's a question of the people not i mean she developed many things for right. hbo for other indies uh, she made one documentary stray dog but um, that's up to the unfortunately the funders uh, yeah. who don't think that she's got a commercial bone in her body and maybe she doesn't yeah i mean that's it's the thing is she's I uncompromising think, in she's words. uncompromising but winter's bone did really well and on uh, she's not an experimental filmmaker she's working no. in a narrative context with you know characters who go on emotional journeys I and mean, there there is something fundamentally commercial about what she's doing relative to a lot of people who just stay outside of the system. It just, she has a very particular style and vision and she's not making big movies and sweeping stories and, and so forth. But I, I also thought there was something kind of fascinating about this movie in the way that, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to figure out whose side you're on. Ben Foster's character is very similar to Viggo Mortensen in um, Captain Fantastic in certain ways. It's true, which could of, hurt this movie. Yeah, anyway. I mean, the thing is... Although Captain, that movie was very popular. And, and also released by Bruce really Receipt. liked it and same, gave him a nomination, which Same distributor, surprise. too. Same distributor. But uh, the Ben Foster character is... Uh, I mean, the thing is, Viggo Mortensen's character goes through a certain transition in that movie, and the Ben Foster character is sort of whatever journey he was going for has, has gotten to a much more advanced stage in a way. And, um, so, so it's, well, he's a wounded, basically he's a, he's a veteran he's who a veteran. hasn't been able to heal. And he's a broken um, man, but, but so very he's, confident. he's raising his daughter in the wilderness partly yeah. because he can't handle society. Exactly. So a lot of that stuff is sort of internalized and it's, it's, it's a harder thing to kind of get people involved in. Although I suppose maybe there's a, a veteran's, angle to it that may draw people it doesn't seem like they're marketing the film in that way no um, i don't know about that i'll be curious to see how how it does um another movie that's actually likely to be more popular and i have to say it, you know this is an interesting trend uh at the box office which is the the uh 
documentaries are doing better than the narrative releases. So Three Identical Strangers, which was a, um, a doc hit at Sundance, even if it's not honestly one of the groundbreaking documentaries of all time in terms of its execution, the story itself is so compelling uh, that I know it's going to do well with audiences. Yeah, it's true. The, the movie is, is just okay, but it's, it's a, this bizarre tale that some people may remember about these three, these triplets who were separated at birth, and um, that particular side of the story that made them famous is just one small piece of a vast conspiratorial drama about yes, why Yes, it gets they were more separated. and more interesting. Yeah, it's it almost sci-fi. You know? Yeah. It's and, really weird. Yeah, sort of I, like that. It's sort of like that Wormwood documentary yeah, by I mean, It's true. It's true. It's like, but the thing is, after I saw this movie, I did some research on it. The movie kind of makes it seem like a lot of this stuff is new. A lot of it is not new. But if you haven't heard of this case, which most people haven't, you're going to go down that wormhole and basically start searching about this stuff. And it it does, I think. A pretty good job of kind of leading you through the different steps of all this stuff and um, I've, it's a great observation that documentaries are doing so well and the question is why well we live in these really bizarro times that everybody's trying to sort out and on some level it seems like movies that are actually dealing with the real world or trying to make sense of it or explain it whether it's how the hell somebody could be as nice as Mr. Rogers or whatever happened in this laboratory with these triplets it is actually more compelling on some level than what you know a traditional drama with some good actors could offer people. So that's kind of neat in a way. Not to well, say well, it's 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 just you know we've been observing for years that the best movies at Sundance are docs, and it seems like the public is beginning to catch up to the same reality. And there's more and more funding, and more and more people making them, and and it, you know it just start, starts to. I mean, I saw like three documentaries this week uh, that I hadn't had time to see at Sundance, and they were all good. Yeah, it's um, overwhelming. You know, so. We will catch up with those anon. But in the meantime, um, the other movie opening this weekend is uh, the sequel to Sicario. Now, you may remember that Denis Villeneuve and, and uh, you know, Roger Deakins and Emily Blunt were part of the first one. Well, the second one has a new director, uh, Salima, from Italy, and a new star, uh you know, someone like uh, Catherine Keener is the CIA uh, boss, um, but it, it inhabits the same world, and it's sort of it's sort of like being uh, in a in a in a in a television context where you have uh, series instead of you know you have you have Patrick Melrose playing out you know, or, or, or Little Women or, or uh, Howard's End in, in a few episodes. And, and this is the same kind of thing where they can just continue the story with some of the same characters in the same world. And I thought it, they did a good job with it. I'm curious. I bet it does well this weekend. You know, the, I've seen the movie twice, not because Why I did was, you go a second time? That's yeah, interesting to I, me. I, well, primarily because I had a friend who loved the first one who really wanted to see it, and I, and I took him. But I, but I concluded after I saw it and I was mixed on it that there was still enough to it that I, I would be okay watching it again because I found the filmmaking to be very involving. And we talked about this before, but there's, there's something that it irks me, but I'm still kind of um, comfortable with it, is, is sort of aping the style of the first film in, in a very blatant way. So the, 
the uh, kind of the the really intense dramatic sequences are are so you know you know blatantly manipulative in a way that I found to be very involving, almost like in in, in a B movie way. Like there's some ludicrous stuff that happens in this movie, and I won't spoil it. But it was still very entertaining, and the fact that it was in the confines of a movie that's about such a you know pressing issue for society right now, irrespective of how it comes across politically, makes it incredibly watchable. So I was kind of into it in that sense, and I do enjoy the dynamic between the characters, and I'll keep watching it, even though I, I didn't think it it was quite as sophisticated as the original one. But I fair, was thinking, fair enough, and we should point out that T Taylor Sheridan uh, wrote wrote them both, yeah. and I'd be very curious to see if this one does well, which I think it will. How um, how how whether he would do another you know do another yeah. one? Uh, but you finally caught up with Ocean's Eight. What did you think? Yeah, I mean it's an interesting point of comparison. Another movie that is a sequel of sorts, although in this case with original characters. I guess what, what, what surprised me about Ocean's 8 is how much I just kind of enjoyed it all the way through. It didn't stick with me, of course. It's, it's almost like a movie that was designed to be forgettable. But people who say that Ocean's 8 is super underwhelming or whatever seem to forget that Ocean's 13 was, like, not a great movie. Like, in the, if I were to rank them, this, was de this one's definitely ahead of that one. And maybe even mm, ahead of I Ocean's I would agree 12. with that. Ocean's 12, which had some, like... Fun like messing that. around in a way, but this one, I think, what's kind of neat about it is that it's it takes the heist formula and it just kind of delivers on it in a way where it's just like if you like the style, it's it's there. There's nothing problematic. But it's the same about thing. It. It's the same thing as Sicario in a way, in the sense that you're inhabiting the same world. In other words, there are re and the same genre, and there are the, the rules of the formula, and, and you're you're you've got a group of, of of pretty well known actors, you know, with a good sense of comedy uh, participating in, in in the heist. But you you really don't have any of the characters from the other one. You have mentions of yeah. Danny Ocean, yeah. and that's it. And the, but I, I thought that was kind of funny because like. He's sort of this phantom character, but you don't you don't you don't need him. You keep wondering you're going to hear his voice or something like that. But why? You don't need they they've given us Sandra Bullock who to me I thought was really well cast in this part. She is in many ways the the had sort of the 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 equivalent to Danny Absolutely. Ocean. And, She's and then, driving the narrative. And then Kate Blanchett. I mean, that's a really potent combo there. The chemistry delivers. It's good. It's just yes. fun to watch them. I, I mean, it's it's not like the movie goes anywhere really interesting. The ending is is Anne Hathaway is funny though. Yeah, Anne Hathaway has a good time. It's, I just felt like if I was sort of, you know, hanging out in a, an installation version of this thing, I'd I'd want to just like roam from room to room and watch these ladies talk about stuff because that's kind of where the essence of the movie is. And then the kind of the the neat and completely outrageous way in which they they you know concoct this heist you know, is, is, is there exactly the way you'd expect it to be, you know, things are revealed and there's payoff that's, you know, hard to buy, but nevertheless kind of funny. And I, and I think there is something really fascinating about the relationship that Sandra Bullock's character has off screen to her brother, Danny Ocean, uh, that's kind of hinted at in a way, and it leaves the door open for more movies. And it's also kind of fascinating to think about it in the context of what people are so used to with TV shows. TV shows tend to 
overstay their welcome, right? You, you hit on something good, and then you just like keep going and going until the thing runs out of steam. But a great movie sequel... Sometimes going for too long. Yeah, exactly. Right? No, but this is what I was saying before. It's the same point. It's 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 the idea that in the movies, one of the great horrors for most studios is that they would spend a fortune on a brand new original movie and have to market it and establish a brand and get people to come and see it, and then it could die and not and no one will come and there everything is lost. But if they have something that they already know people like, which is the whole principle of sequels, they can extend it. And this way they can continue to play the game. Now we're seeing what goes wrong with solo if if you if you pick the wrong thing. But but it it, it, it makes the studios much more uh, comfortable <laughs> to be able to, to and that's why T V is 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 burgeoning and 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 flourishing is because they don't have to worry about this. They can just keep going with all of these worlds and the Marvel universe can keep going with all of these worlds. Yeah, but I think the contrast that's kind of interesting there is that with the movies, so the Marvel universe is is one example and these movies are are doing it on a totally different scale, but you, you do have kind of the opportunity to take a breather, find a different angle, give audience a lot of time to kind of anticipate this thing and then give them two hours that have to be substantial in a way that delivers for a long period of time. Whereas with the TV show, you have much more expansive opportunities. And it's kind of interesting to look at the contrast between these two different storytelling techniques because, you know, it's, I don't think like turning the Oceans franchise into a TV series would make much sense, but no. every yeah, couple of years is like and, and you want you want the scale and you want the luxuriousness and and you want the music and all that good stuff. And you well, get tired of it after a while if it happened every week. Well, let's talk about Westworld, which just concluded. Uh, the finale was this past uh, week. Now I um hung in there through, through these different seasons, and I've, I've managed to, to stay engaged. I managed to stay engaged to the very end of this. You um, have been watching these, too. And by the way, anyone who's listening, if you haven't seen the Westworld finale, spoiler alert. I guess so. I don't, it's, it's, there's so much to unpack that it's hard to figure out what constitutes a spoiler in this thing. It's the weirdness if, of if the editing. If you understand <laughs> it in the first place. I felt that it was sort of like, hard to give it away because it's inexplicable. I, I felt like it was actually more straightforward than a lot of people seem to be describing it. It's just that in it the was, end, yes. it was edited in a nonlinear fashion Correct. that throws you off. And, you know, that, that's kind of cool. I, I wasn't on board with some of the, the deaths that happened, particularly with a human character that I thought didn't need to sacrifice himself. But even the people now in, in Westworld could come back in some capacity. And the thing I thought that was really cool about, about it was that one thing that really delivered here is the first season was all built up to the finale at the end. And this one really, really does a good job of, of completely changing up the world all over again. Like at the end yeah. of the first season, it's like Westworld being, you know, the, the, the hosts, the robots are rebelling and that's one thing. But if you just stayed with that premise indefinitely, it would get tiring. Now no, you've got... they had a wrinkle. They definitely had a wrinkle, which was to explain, A, what the man in black was up to all this time and B, uh, what, what the corporate 
villains were trying to achieve. And it, it relates very clearly to the world that we're paranoid about now. With, oh, sure. And uh, also, cyber as does the... Warfare and hacking and, and all the stealing of information that's well, going yeah, on. Well, yeah, the way that, that information travels in this world, I mean, the fact of the matter is that we don't know exactly how many people or how many hosts are now sort of unleashed in the real world, but they're out there and they're operating in a way that is kind of beyond uh, what we can totally understand. And I think that part of it's kind of fascinating too. It's almost like a, like a Julian Assange WikiLeaks style operation or something, and, and potentially giving Tessa Thompson the opportunity to step up and be the actual main character of the show, although we'll see exactly how we'll see how they resolve how that, that side of things uh, develops. But it's cool. It's I mean, a little it's, bit like the Marvel world too, yeah, where there are all is. these deaths, all these kill-offs, and and the real, uh, you know, <laughs> who's who's really dead and who's who's really going to be able to to continue. I think that's an an interesting question. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. I mean, it's a very cinematic show, and I think they're doing a great job of it. And it, it's it totally belongs on TV with the kind of productions budget that they're being given at this particular moment and not, you know, as, as a movie, I mean, it already was a movie a long time ago, but this is... It's no, perfect, it's very cinematic and, yeah. and it's it's got lots of movie actors in it and, and it looks good. Um, Altered Carbon is another one that played this year. I don't know if you saw it. It's not nearly it. as good. Yeah, I watched but, a little um, bit of it. Yeah, it kinda, Joel Kinnaman was in it, but yeah. it too did, played around with, with these ideas of, of who's real and whose body can be replaced by another body and who's the who who's who where is the original you know people are throwing these throwing these data packs brains around you know throwing them in their pocket <laughs> but i enjoyed it i did i wasn't satisfied by the ending it's not like i was totally oh great you know but um it was it was compelling throughout and i i i'll i'll take it yeah, sometimes that's all you got to do. So next week, I hope you get a chance to see Ant-Man and the Wasp. I've been holding my tongue about it this week, but there's much I'm to debating there. it. It's really interesting. This week I had to choose between going to see uh, the press screening of Ant-Man and the Wasp and going to the premiere that HBO threw for Sharp Objects, which stars Amy Adams in a big high-level um, Jillian Flynn, uh, Jean Mark Vallee, uh, you know, extravaganza with Patricia Clarkson as her mother, and it's it's a it's very edgy and fun, and uh, I chose that because I'd heard it was really good. Um, I have to tell you, true confession, I didn't like the first Ant Man. If I were doing a ranking of all the Marvel titles, by the way, I'm a huge fan of these Marvel movies. I like almost all of them. This would be the one at the bottom of the list. It's lightweight. I don't respond to Paul Rudd. Uh, there's something about it that I never like. But don't liked. forget, this is Ant-Man and the Wasp. So you got Evangeline Lilly sort of having a more prominent role this time. I'm there. curious. I, what, I, okay, I have mixed I'll feelings go. about the movie. I hope you check it out because then we have things to talk about. And, uh, and it will be a major release, obviously, next week. Of course, we can also talk about a lot of other stuff because it's a crowded marketplace, especially in our world. Bye-bye.